This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Gary Giddens to discuss his book, Visions of Jazz, with a particular emphasis on the very, very early days of ragtime and vaudeville as they evolved into and reacted to the emergence of what we now see as jazz. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're welcoming back Gary Giddens to discuss his book, Visions of Jazz, the First Century. And I want to talk about a specific part of that book, the part one precursors portion. Gary, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. It's good to be back, Nate. It's great to have you. And and I love this book, and I especially liked the discussion of this period that you call the pre-modern era of 1900 to 1920, which you say is, quote, lost in neglect, ignorance, and embarrassment. Be clouded as it is with blackface minstrelsy and unseemly ethnic humor, not to mention two-beat rhythms with accents on accents on the upbeats, we tend to cringe before that dark, distant, unswinging past. Anything to add to that about the period from 1900 to 1920? Why does it seem so much further away than the period from 1920 to 1930? There's a, a constancy, a, 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 a dealing with the modernist qualities that came along in the 20s, uh, both in the jazz and in the classical world at the same time. And uh, the jazz uh, the jazz element, particularly as, as uh, 
created by Louis Armstrong. We, when we listen to those recordings, they could have been made yesterday. I mean, we, we respond emotionally to them. Whereas, and the same with Ellington, who, who brings a whole new sophistication in the beginning and around 1920, late 1926, 27, and then forevermore. Um, but when we listen to the earlier music, it's it sounds distant for a number of reasons. One, it's purely technological. This is the period of acoustic recording. Uh, the recordings sound uh, uh, dreadful, and unless you become acquainted with them and learn how to listen and become used to them, they can they can just be a, a bother. Uh, everything sort of changes with the introduction of electrical recording in 1925. Then there's the whole question of swing and and all of those other issues that I mentioned that that you just uh, recited. Uh, but I, I have to say that since I wrote that, there's been a much more open uh, willingness to look back at that early period and to find things of value and interest in it. So I, I would amend that if I were if I were writing that today. Uh, for example, uh, just a few weeks ago or a couple of months ago, uh, Jason Moran came out with a new recording uh, in which he interprets music by James Reese Europe. And uh, Europe was a phenomenal figure in the 1920s. He recorded uh, mostly in 1914, and then after the he he was involved in the First World War. And then uh, after the war in 1919, and then he was uh, tragically uh, murdered not too long after that. So basically, we have the 1914 recordings and the 1919 recordings. Now, the 1914 recordings uh, seem quite prophetic in terms of the the music that's going to come along that we call jazz. Uh, But, and I find this fascinating, Europe, uh, disdained improvisation and didn't want to be associated with it. He felt that uh, whites uh, stereotyped black musicians as being unprofessional, undisciplined, untutored, and that improvisation sort of played into that prejudice so that when he started recording again in 1919, everything was very carefully notated and and more complex in its, in its composition. Uh, Jason Moran in his recordings actually does more work with the 1919 material than he does, interestingly, with the 1914. And it's fascinating stuff. And and he's not the only one. Uh, You know, the fact that uh, uh, Cecile uh, McLaurin Salvin went back and rediscovered Ida Cox, who's a very early figure in in blues uh, who had been even though she lived and recorded into the 50s she was been a very neglected figure and so what i see in quite a number of instances of of younger uh, musicians looking back they don't feel intimidated by all the biases that we grew up with and so i think they're finding new ways to explore it um, I love what Aaron Deal has been doing recently in the last few years with Gershwin. Um, he's sort of reclaiming Gershwin as a as a jazz figure, uh, which is right and proper, I think. And he's also reminding us that the the, the two uh, uh, 
uh, Gershwin recordings with Whiteman of Rhapsody and Blue, they're both severe abridgments, uh, the piano cadenzas are different. So clearly Gershwin, who improvised parts of them, uh, was, and we know from his other recording sessions and from everything he said, he championed improvisation and embellishment. He was famous for it in playing at private parties. But when the music made it onto the classical repertoire, suddenly everything classical musicians don't know how to improvise for the most part and they certainly don't know how to swing so everything became notated and very you know standardized and and in some respect rather stodgy so to see jazz musicians like not only Aaron Deal but uh, uh, Stefano Bolani in Italy uh, taking this music and bringing it back into jazz sort of grabbing it by its short hairs and pulling it somewhat uh, into the original uh, instrumentation which was big band rather than symphonic orchestra and and playing around with the cadenzas and the rhythms um, we're seeing a great openness to that very music that seemed uh, much more archaic to me uh, what are we talking about 25 years ago when I wrote when I published that book and let's go ahead and hear our first song. And this is one that that's definitely um, masked with the face of minstrelsy. This is the great Burt Williams. You can't get away from it. It causes a sensation. You can't get away from and even men of high position. Great big politicians all pal around with the right musicians. They buy it, don't deny it, you can't get away from it. Uh, on Sunday, same as Monday, you can't get away from it. Uh, and that was You Can't Get Away From It by Burt Williams. And Burt Williams is right in the heart of the issues that cause this era to be so neglected. He, although he was African-American, he performed in blackface, um, not in straight up minstrel shows like 19th century style. He spent the 1900s with his partner, George Walker, doing what for the time was very modern sketch comedy with, with African-American yes. writers and, and, and African-American performers. But it also, from descriptions I've read of the material, you can't really see their their sketch sketches uh, aren't preserved that their songs are. It sounds a lot like they're doing Amos and Andy routines, where the 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 quick talking Walker would 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 lure the the slow talking Williams into a get rich quick scheme that would then inevitably end badly. Um, but tell us a little bit about Burt Williams and why he was such. Or tell us how he was such a breakthrough figure in American entertainment as an African-American, and also why he's been neglected comparatively to, say, Al Jolson. All right. Well, first, just for the record, uh, they aren't sounding like Amos and Andy. Amos and Andy imitated them. So, Fair enough. Yeah, you know, yeah, Amos, that's what I meant. Yeah, they were the influence Amos and of Andy Andy. was uh, created by two white uh ex-minstrel uh, writer comedians and uh, they created these black characters and they built on a lot of the the comedy routines uh, that were created by black performers which became stereotypes um, I just want to say one more thing about Amos Nandy and then I'll get off this because I find it a very interesting subject and that is when it came to television and they only did it for two seasons the whole the whole nature of the program changed because they brought together one of the greatest casts of black comedians ever. 
I mean, Tim Moore and Ernestine Wade are hysterically funny, and they made those characters, Kingfish and Sapphire, simply by the force of their extraordinary talent, uh, the 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 locus for the whole series. I mean, Amos and Andy is still the name of the show, but they become supporting characters. So I'll get off that. Uh, Burt Williams was a, an extraordinary comedian. We don't. He died very uh, early on, uh, long before electrical recording. And and uh, he there's one film of him that exists of him uh, pantomiming a uh, card game, and it is. Stunning. I I wouldn't be surprised if it's on uh, YouTube. I'm sure you can find it online. It is on YouTube. uh, It is? Yeah. Uh, Good. Well, everybody should take a look at it. I I saw it once at the Museum of Modern Art on a a giant screen, and, you know, the audience was completely gobsmacked. I mean, he's an absolutely miraculous pantomimist. But there's just so little of him that survived. Um, he hated doing blackface. We have to point that out. He really um, uh, despised the whole thing. But because uh, he made that compromise with uh, Florence Ziegfeld, he became the first uh, black headliner in white on white Broadway. He'd been a headliner on black Broadway before, and there were other performers as well. But uh, making that cut to... Uh, to the Ziegfeld Follies was a big deal. And some of the performers in the show refused to appear or they threatened to walk out uh, if they had to uh, share the stage with a, a Negro. And uh, uh, Ziegfeld basically said, Good, goodbye. <laughs> you know, uh, you're not as, as gifted or as important as Burt Williams. The guy, the people who, and a lot of them did walk out, but the people who stayed, the people who were great fans of his, those are the ones we remember. W.C. Fields, Eddie Cantor, Fanny Bryce, uh, you know, uh, Fields uh, thought he was the greatest comedian he'd ever seen. And Eddie Cantor, uh, I can't can't quote the exact line, but something like uh, the funniest man I ever saw and the saddest man I ever knew. Or maybe Fields was the one who said that. Yeah, Cantor was the one who said he learned everything about timing that he knew. Timing, right. And and Cantor also uh, roomed with him when they went on tour. So they were in awe of this guy, and and uh, uh, the shame is that he died in 1922. Now, fortunately, he made a lot of recordings, and uh, most people would not be aware of this now, but they were huge sellers. They made a lot of money for the early Columbia Records. At one point, they were outselling uh, Caruso's recordings on RCA, but they are a challenge to listen to because the recording technology is so primitive and because they're very verbal. Uh, You have to really pay attention. And some of the references and jokes uh, need to be annotated because they're going to go over most of our heads. Uh, But one of the interesting things about those records, especially the ones that he made in that interesting year of 1914, uh, have backgrounds that sound uh, predictive, again, of jazz. They they use uh, the instrumentation. They have certain rhythms, uh, feeling of spontaneity. And so uh, they, they do, I think, uh, amount to significant precursors of uh, 
what we would what a couple of years later would be called jazz after the original Dixieland jazz band uh, went north. And the other figure from this period, kind of Bart Williams' mirror image or reverse image, is Al Jolson, and he's somebody who's. Right. Uh, name ID has stayed pretty high, but it seems like today he's really only remembered because he did blackface, and he's kind of become yeah, which, the icon of minstrelsy, which is really unfair. I mean, minstrelsy had been going on since the 1830s, 1840s. Jolson comes along in the 1900s as this Jewish immigrant and creates a new form of minstrelsy in a way. How do you see Jolson today, and how do you think he's misseen? in 2023? Well, let me say first that if Jolson, whose career almost exactly parallels uh, Burt Williams, if he had died in 1922, he would be as unknown to, to us as, as Williams, or as known, but he certainly wouldn't be the, the major defining figure that uh, generations of Americans grew up with, uh, because after all, he is, he is the poster boy for the new technology. He stars in the first sound film. He sings, he dances, he says the famous line, you ain't heard nothing yet. And uh, uh, he went on to have a tremendous uh, popularity in the movies for the next, I would say, three years. And then the whole uh, thing about uh, minstrelsy began to fade off and so did his career. Uh, he, also, he was also a huge star on stage. He toured the whole country, influenced performers everywhere he went. He was the the shining light for Bing Crosby, who as a kid worked backstage pulling uh, stage uh, ropes uh, and was completely awed by him. And of course, his records just sold very well. But then uh, after his career sort of died away, it was remade in the during the war. And after the war, uh, when uh, the new technology uh, was, was sort of beginning to peak, this was right before Microgroove was introduced, and Jolson re-recorded all of his recordings. But big surprise, uh, when he first was a star in the teens, he was a tenor. But his voice, he was a he was a addicted uh, smoker, pack a day, uh, several packs a day, probably chain smoker. I think that's the phrase. And uh, his voice had fallen down and he was now very definitely a baritone. And uh, that was much more appealing to audiences. Uh, it had a more romantic quality and, and at the same time, more, more of a comic quality, and, uh, paradoxically. And uh, so those records sold millions of copies, um, so much so that they uh, made a film, Columbia Pictures made The Jolson Story, which was the third top grossing movie of 46. And then because of that, they made a sequel called Jolson Sings Again, which isn't quite as good, but... Uh, that was the number one box office success of 1949. So Mr. C and Blackface was still very, very popular then. Uh, that was just part of show business. And uh, and it wasn't just white audiences. I mean, we're, we're offended by it now, and a lot of people were offended by it then. But if you look at uh, uh, the movie like uh, Stormy Weather, which has an all-black cast, uh, some of the mo more popular performers in it are are black actors shown backstage blacking up because that's part of the tradition that they come out of and that they helped to innovate in the first place. So yeah, and and we know that 
Sorry to interrupt, but and we know that that uh, a young Aretha Franklin and her father, the Reverend C. L. Franklin, were watching Jolson in this period. And Jackie Wilson, uh, the great R and B singer, was a massive Jolson fan who became a. Jolson he made a whole fan. album of of uh, Jackie Wilson sing, singing, you know, my yeah. your mama and, and <laughs> all Jolson pieces. Um, it, yeah, me, Jolson and, had and a tremendous impact. Let's jump in and let's hear a little bit of Al Jolson. This is Al Jolson doing that loving Tromerai from 1912. She sit beside him waiting with her heart a palpitation while he started think of faith and thought love. Then she'd he sighs at him, roll up them eyes at him. And that was Al Jolson doing that Love and Traumerai from 1912. And yeah, these earlier recordings, I found completely changed my perception of Jolson. My, my original exposure to him had been through the movie The Jazz Singer in a film class and then hearing his re-recordings in the later period. And I just find that the 19 teens, the stuff from the 1910s, just a real revelation. I mean, he's still, there's still clunky things. He's still singing for the stage rather than the microphone, That's but right. there's a, a certain vitality. I think you called it that, that blackface for him released a certain core vitality and, and the, uh, has a mysterious, somewhat macabre appeal. And I think, I think that's right. There's something about early Jolson. There's, it, there's a lot more to it than just minstrelsy and blackface. It's expressing the immigrant voice of the teens, and it's kind of a pair with, mm-hmm. with Irving Berlin. Um, just, just a, uh, I don't know. It's very hard to, to to get back to that period and and penetrate what people saw. But you have a great quote Which in really here that, yeah. that says that the unanimous consensus of his contemporaries was that he was the greatest entertainer alive, and and that our reactions ever since at least the sixties has been very different. And there's almost this alienation from Jolson, but you say that that shows that we live in a different world and that that's absolutely the case. I mean, and I'm glad, I'm <laughs> glad that is. Well, of course we do. And it must be said that Jolson was a pretty delusional, uh, you know, about, about the, the blackface. He, I mean, he actually, you know, he campaigned. He, he was friendly. Well, he made Gershwin a wealthy man. He he had, when he recorded Swanee, which was the most lucrative song uh, that Gershwin wrote during his lifetime. And he he campaigned. He wanted to play Porgy and and Gershwin. You know, it's, he wrote in the contract is still in the estate clauses that only black performers uh, can play those roles. Because the first time Jolson wrote an, an op, uh, sort of a one act operetta. Uh, arranged incidentally by the great uh, black uh, arranger and and uh, show business figure Will Votary, um, uh, it was performed by white performers in blackface, and and Gershwin was appalled and made sure that would never happen again. But Joseph thought it was perfectly appropriate. He he thought I'm the most famous Negro, you know, performer in the world. Uh, he he really, you know went over the top and but you know even if when you watch some of the early films now as appalling as it is now to see that makeup and the 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 white gloves and the the, the wigs and or the whole the whole thing 
he is electrifying. I mean, there's just nobody else quite who walks out on a stage like that. There are a lot of other blackface performers that you can find in the movies, but most of them uh, are more likely to imitate uh, Burt Williams. They're sort of sedate, they're sadder, they're uh, more nuanced. But uh, Jolson and Cantor are the two live wires. When Cantor puts on blackface, and it, it, my favorite of his films is called Roman Scandals, which was uh, directed by Frank Tuttle, who was at that time a member of the Communist Party, which he never hid, but was later blacklisted because of it. And it, it, people always say, well, none of those movies are really communistic. Well, Roman Scandal sort of is, and, uh, and, and in a hilarious kind of way. And Cantor plays this sort of nebbishy guy who works in a museum, and then he's knocked on the head, and he thinks he's in ancient Rome. Uh, when he puts blackface on, his whole character changes. He becomes incredibly sexual uh, in, a, in an omnivorous sort of way. There's a lot of homoeroticism in Cantor's blackface routines, and especially because he's wearing a toga, which looks like a you know cocktail skirt. And uh, uh, there, there is there is a complexity here of what about what you're seeing and what these things mean. Bob, Ho, I, I, most of the writing I did on blackface actually is is probably in the first volume of my Ben Crosby book. Um, and, and actually the second volume, there's a whole chapter on the film Dixie, uh, where I talk about it in even more detail. <clears throat> and uh, in the course of my research, I interviewed Bob Hope, and Hope told me that when he first st- first came to uh, the East Coast, he was working at a as an MC on a vaudeville show in New Jersey. And uh, he was scared to death, and he walked out, and he... Did his stuff, and he was, you know, sweating uh, bullets, and he walked off. And an old timer came over to him, and he said, "Tomorrow night, wear cork. Cork is blackface because it was actually applied with burnt corks." And uh, and Hope said, "Why?" And he said, "Because you'll be invisible, and it will give you confidence. And after you do it a couple of times, you won't need the blackface anymore." And he said it was true. He, he came out the next night. He, he felt nobody can see me. I'm not really here. I can do whatever I want and get away with it. And it just changed his whole his whole relationship to the audience. So you know, and I also remember him uh, interviewing uh, uh, the what's his name, uh, Donald O'Connor. He was an extraordinary performer. Everybody remembers him from Singing in the Rain. And uh, O'Connor started out in, in a, a vaudeville and circus and medicine shows. He he did every aspect of show business, including blackface minstrelsy. And I said, but, you know, when you look back at it now, it doesn't seem offensive to you. And I never forget this. He leaned over to me and he said, what kind of a man do you, a person do you think I am? Do you think if I thought it was offensive, I would have done it? And I had to, to think, you know it was it was a different world and people weren't thinking of it in the terms that we are especially i think because there were so many famous black uh performers who worked in blackface with burt williams be the, being the king of them yeah it's 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 a fascinating topic and it was clearly perceived very differently in the 20s than it is now and it was perceived differently in the 20s than it had been in the 1800s and it went through several changes in the 1800s how it was seen but the power of mask is is immense, and I think uh, an understated part of it. But let's let's take a sponsor break. When we come back, I want to talk about Louis Armstrong and the Mills Brothers and what you call signifying. 
Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's Factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You've got a whole chapter in this section of the book on a series of collaborations that Louis Armstrong and the Mills Brothers did in the 1930s. And Louis Armstrong needs no introduction. He's become a cultural figure, and and he's probably more popular today uh, relative to his contemporaries than he was in the 20s or 30s, meaning 
you know, there's more Google searches for Louis Armstrong than Bing Crosby by a wide margin today, mm-hmm. which would which is interesting. But the Mills brothers are pretty overlooked. They were a, a early harmony group, um, had a guitarist, but otherwise sang harmony and imitated uh, jazz instruments. But they did a series of songs together, including a double side sided uh, single uh, led, led by Carry Me Back to Old Virginia, Old Virginia, which was written by a black man, James A. Bland in 1878. But it's very much mm-hmm. a Stephen Foster cliche black people mourning for the quote-unquote good old days of slavery, which is the head-exploding part of minstrelsy. But they also did Darling Nellie Gray, which was written by Benjamin R. Hanby as an abolitionist anthem meant to force white people to confront the emotional devastation of slavery. Tell us about their interpretations of these songs and why you thought that the, these this collaboration was so notable that it that merited the whole chapter in the book. Well, there's a kind of uh, emotional conversation going on. It's, I, I think most people then missed it, uh, although maybe not. It's difficult to know how, you know, uh, the hip audiences were when they heard something like this, because it's a radical recording. And I, today, I don't see how you can miss it. But the basic, the role of the Mills Brothers, who had a great deal of wit in their music, and uh, but it's basically to sing these songs straight, almost like, you know, a choir. And uh, Armstrong comes in, and he is a, 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 like a kibitzer. I mean, he swings every phrase he sings, which right away, if you want to understand the complexity of swing, you know, Armstrong is an endlessly fascinating subject. And this is a great example, because simply by virtue of the way he approaches uh, his part rhythmically, he gives it uh, a much more modern and a much more uh, nuanced uh, cast. And uh, the Mills Brothers sort of recede as great as they are. Now, the Mills Brothers began, uh, this was long before the, the phrase rhythm and blues existed, but they, they, they had a very rhythmic jazz equality. And uh, they were, in fact, they were famous primarily, not only for having uh, beautiful voices, uh, but for the ability to imitate instruments. They were very influenced by Ellington's arrangements, and they were able to imitate the trumpet trombone uh, harmonies with their voices. And that's why they're billed on their early records as four boys and a guitar. To, to let everybody know that there were only these guys and uh, uh, basically a guy playing, uh, you know, uh, the beat on the uh, on the rhythm guitar. Um, but then in 1939, everything sort of changed. Uh, the same thing happened with the Ink Spots, which is another fascinating group, which really is one of the pioneers of, of rhythm and blues. But uh, the Mills Brothers uh, had a hit record called Paper Doll. I think a lot of people will remember that one. It's an extraordinary performance in a way because it features the two key singers and uh, uh, Harry, who is the jazz singer in the group, and Donald, who is his marvelous balladeer, introduces the song. The lyric, I think, is one of the most perverse in the entire history of popular song. I mean, talk about fetishism. It's about somebody who would rather have a a paper doll than a real life girl because they're so flirty. Um, it is a very bizarre lyric, but the the song really 
has a punch to it and it swings. And it was it wasn't just a hit. It was the top selling secular recording of the entire decade of the 1940s. The number one spot went to White Christmas and number two went to another Christmas theme song, Gene Autry's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And number three was the Mills Brothers uh, Paper Doll. So after that, all of their records were sort of primed to that format. There was a lot less imitating instruments and a lot more of the contrast between the, the ballad singer and the jazzier singer who would do the second chorus. Um, they were very musical, um, and uh, they they recorded for Decca, as did the Ink Spots, as did Louis Armstrong, as did Ella Fitzgerald, as did Louis Jordan, and I mention all of them in particular because they recorded those all those acts, which were huge, uh, would record together in a kind of uh, incestuous uh, promotion of of the Decca family. And Jack Cap, who created the label, it was his idea to take uh, major stars and have them appear on a record together. And he also uh, in, insisted on integrating the acts. I mean, Bing Crosby performing with uh, uh, Louis Jordan was a, a big deal. It automatically meant uh, Jordan was no longer going to just be on the sepia label. It was going to be on the, the, the this major pop label. And... Uh, Armstrong's recordings with the Mills Brothers and Elvis Gerald with the Ink Spots, I think, are among the musical high points of the DECA catalog because of the, of, the, of the incredible contrast and because these artists really inspire each other. I mean, Ellen never really sounded cooler and hipper and better and as great as she was. And I'm in a constant uh, adoration of Ella Fitzgerald, but uh, into each life, a little rain must fall where she's really working against Bill Kenny's uh, high tenor voice uh, brings out something in her. That's just quite glorious. And uh, those groups have, they, they've, um, I don't know, they have dated in a strange way. You know, the, the Mills Brothers practically invented vocal harmony on records. It's, it's impossible to overstate their impact on, on everybody who came afterward. They even made a record, a, a cover record of uh, Get a Job, which was a big rock and roll hit of the 1950s. But it was a sample of the kind of thing that wouldn't exist without those groups. And I would argue that there is no more influential singer in the history of rock and roll, certainly in the early period, than Bill Kenny, who had nothing to do with rock and roll, but he was the lead singer, the tenor singer with the Ink Spots. And if you put together an anthology of uh, doo-wop groups and Elvis Presley, who acknowledged him as a, a major influence, and basically all of the early white singers and certainly all of the black uh, groups you know the five satins and uh, you know, songs like in the still of the night. Any 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 of those kinds of records. There's always uh, the platters. Almost everything the platters did. Uh, there's always a, a, a high voice singer in the Bill Kenny. And the other thing they imitate is is having a, a low voice uh, sort of uh, sing spiel uh, who talks the lyric. Even the coasters, which was basically a, a sort of comic version of rhythm and blues. Lieber and Stoller writing their their songs uh, had Dub Jones, who was a, 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 a 
face. Uh, he did all the joke lines, you know, Charlie Brown. Uh, well, I, I forget what the lines are. Yakety Yak, he's the one who yeah. says, don't talk back. Uh, but in the ink spots, it's, it's a guy named Hoppy Jones. And Hoppy Jones is disturbing to contemporary listeners because they don't really get the humor and they're afraid that they're hearing some sort of black stereotype. But this this was the one of the most popular groups uh, of, of the war years. They were white. Uh, audiences loved them, but so did black audiences. And black audiences uh, sustained their style in throughout the early decade of rhythm and blues. It's hard to find a group that doesn't have some touch of the ink spots in them. And I, once you sort of get in on the humor, it's it's awful. It's very funny some of the things he does. I mean, he reads the lyric, uh, Hoppy Jones. Uh, uh, in a way that uh, it, it, that has a certain uh, minstrel theatrical quality to it, but he he does it with a, a lot of irony. You know, one of their great records is "Do I Worry," and Bill Kenny sings the song in this very high voice. And uh, do I worry because you're, you're stepping out? Do I worry? And, you know, he's got guys check us out there somewhere and cheating on him. And then Hoppy Jones comes along and he says, do I worry? You know, I can't imitate <laughs> it, but it's, it, you know, it's like, what do you think? And, <laughs> uh, and he's always uses, uses the phrase honey child. And uh, it, it's, it, I, I, I really think that uh, they, they all need to be rediscovered and, and reexamined because they were, they were really significant and gifted artists and it's a mistake to try to uh to dismiss them because of uh interpretations that they never intended and and uh, that i think they're not guilty of and let's go ahead and hear a little bit of louis armstrong and the mills brothers this is their ironic take on carry me back to old virginia Carry me back to old Virginia There's where the cotton and the corn and taters grow There's where the birds wobble sweet in the springtime There's where the old donkey's heart long to go There's where I labored so hard for old master Day after day and that was the Mills Brothers playing it straight, and Louis Armstrong uh, having no brook with with the the. That's right. That the happy right. talk. That, that it, the whole thing. He sees, you know, he sees right through the lyric, and he lets you know it. And I really don't think any other performer in that period could have quite gotten away with it. You know, Louis Jordan is is fascinating to me because his subject of of all his great songs is black culture. It's, it's as though uh, the white society hardly even exists for him. It's about, you know, Saturday night fish fries and socials and church and even even his uh, army songs are, you know, sort of inside jokey uh, re- references to the, the culture that he's celebrating. Uh, but Armstrong is is more satirical. Armstrong is uh, he can get away with almost anything because uh, people just. They hear what they want to hear, and they loved Louis Armstrong on so many different levels. And if there was something that might have been disturbing if somebody else did it, that they would, you know, just chortle with it and and not worry about it too much. 
I think I say this in the book, but um, I'm not quite sure at this point. Um, but I, I, I seem to remember uh, when I was uh, when I discovered these recordings, which came as quite an astonishment to me, I think. Uh, uh, and it wasn't on an American label. It was a European label that had collected all the Armstrong and Mills recordings. Um, I started to research and I couldn't find a word written about them. I mean, jazz critics were embarrassed by these records in the, at the time they came out. Um, it's hilarious to me, I, in a negative way, to read the, the reviews that Metronome and Downbeat often published of Inkspot's songs. They, they, they couldn't hear what was going on at all. And, and uh, they, they thought it was uh, you know commercial and sappy and just no respect at all for the musicianship there. Um, probably thinking that they're much, uh, you know, more politically uh, uh, with it because they're failing to hear what's being said. Yeah, it's it's the criticism of that period, and to me, even the whole creation of of jazz as an art music with bebop kind of lets rhythm and blues lets louis jordan just walk off with the popular audience of jazz and and the dance audience of jazz and make it a new thing rhythm and blues and then and then you know rock and roll and soul etc and yeah to me the the whole telling of the 20s 30s 40s is very different than than it looks to me when when i look back at this stuff but let's look at another figure who's um been very differently interpreted from the way he was seen in his own time. And I'm talking about W.C. Handy, who was known when he was alive and then for for a decade or so after his death as the father of the blues, you know, the author of St. Louis Blues and Memphis Blues, the man who legendarily saw a slide guitar player playing along, you know, uh, near a railroad station where Handy and his band were, were about to play a set. And notice that the you know this humble little blues guitarist is getting good money in his guitar case, and 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 so Handy zeroes in on what it is that that's so odd about this music, and tries to distill the essence of it, and comes back with Memphis Blues, which is you know a massive hit, and then St. Louis Blues, which is even bigger, and made him made him a wealthy man. But today, his role in the creation of the blues is has been pretty systematically diminished. How do you see Handy today? Like, is he the father of the blues? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, did he invent the blues? No, of course not. He never really claimed that. Uh, and a lot of the compositions he are composed from uh, pieces that he heard that he brought together. But the organization of those multi-themed songs like St. Louis Blues is is frequently ingenious. Uh, St. Louis Blues is the number one, the most recorded song between 1897 and 1942 by a far margin. Everybody recorded St. Louis Blues. And uh, and why? I mean, not just not just the blues. It's it's uh, it's got it, three different ryth- rhythmic bases in its in its choruses, and uh, it's uh, it, the melody is unforgettable. And he did it many times. Also, he's the guy who popularized the twelve bar blues, which he had a difficult time doing because the publishers of sheet music thought they would be the audience would feel ripped off. There was so little music involved <laughs> with twelve bars instead of sixteen, or you know the ragtime tradition of having multiple. 
themes, which which Handy used. Now, Handy wasn't uh, a jazz musician. We we have quite a few recordings of of his uh, band, uh, very badly uh, recorded technologically. But uh, he was basically had a ragtime styled ensemble, and. Uh, when when he started when he had his success with the blues he he was the father of it in the sense that he not only uh copy he was the first one to copyright a, a 12 bar blues he was the first one to publish uh dozens of songs but he 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 was a great representative of it uh you know he published a very important book that's never been out of print called the blues that he did with uh Getting his uh, uh, not Abby Niles, I think was his name, was his assistant who did a lot of the the introductions and the writing. And uh, you know he he was very proud of the fact that the the blues style was picked up by so many uh, uh, songwriters like uh, Berlin and Kern, but above all Gershwin. You know Gershwin uses twelve uh, bar blues in the second movement of the Concerto in F which, uh, you know, Handy was elated by. He includes that as an important blues in his anthology. And then in American in Paris, uh, uh, Gershwin uses two back-to-back 12-bar blues. And, and, it, and it's very hip in the sense that a lot of the general public thought of the blues as sad and desolate and all of that. But most blues songs are actually very upbeat, as Albert Murray said. The whole point of the blues is to keep the blues at bay. And uh, Armstrong's recording of Dallas Blues, one of the happiest records ever made. So uh, Gershwin uses uh, these two back-to-back blues. One, to have his... Uh, uh, a protagonist who's who's this pedestrian walking through the streets of Paris and he's down, he's homesick, he's depressed, and there's that kind of blues. And then he sees uh, the girl of his dreams or something, and he pops up. And then the next blues, it, it just couldn't be more elated. When you see a uh, and Kelly dancing it in the film of the of that name, uh, he goes wild on that second blues. So it became a, an integral part of American music. Um, a lot of black musicians, including some of the very best, decided to not to play blues for a few years in the 20s because they thought the white tin pan dominated Tin Pan Alley and the whole music industry was going to do to the blues what they had already done to ragtime. Everything was called a rag. It, it belittled Scott Joplin's achievement. It belittled the whole seriousness of what had become ragtime music. The most famous ragtime song of all time uh, was Berlin's Alexander's Ragtime Band, which is by no definition a rag, which Berlin knew perfectly well. He wasn't trying to steal it. He was using the name and and the the, the sort of the reputation of a of a gay ragtime band. Um, but they thought that that was going to happen with the, with the blues because everything was being called the so and so blues, so and so blues, and in you know eight out of ten times with these Tin Pan Alley songs, they weren't blues. Uh, they didn't have the format. They didn't have the harmonic structure. They didn't have, you know, the feeling or the rhythm or anything else that Handy had been uh, arguing for in his 1926 book. Uh, one of those performers who didn't want to 
use well most of the uh, the, the two famous examples are Pledger Henderson's orchestra which had uh, which was sort of the the black answer to the Whiteman orchestra the Whiteman orchestra had the best white musicians in the country and Henderson had the best black musicians in the country he had Coleman Hawkins and Buster Bailey and uh, you know Louis Armstrong in 1924 Don Redmond was his arranger it was an all-star orchestra they could play anything <clears throat> but they mostly played popular dances of the time at the Roseland Ballroom. Armstrong came into the band, and Don Redman famously said, the minute he stood up to solo, I knew I was going to have to change my entire style of orchestration. (laughs) Because when they heard Armstrong, they said, wait a second, the blues is this music. It is the harmonic foundation of this music. It has tremendous profundity and feeling. And uh, it's impossible to overstate Armstrong's uh, role as a father of the blues, as someone who really put the blues on the map forever, because he made a blues of everything he played. He made Stardust the blues. He made Body and Soul a blues. He gave that feeling that that uh, and, and those dissonances associated with the blues. He he placed it everywhere. But the real the real revelation, probably even more than the. Henderson was Ellington because Ellington was the more gifted figure and he was writing songs that were uh, and tunes that were uh, deliberately sort of evading the blues. And then after he heard Armstrong, he realized he was making a big mistake. And the first thing he did was hire uh, one of the best trumpet players alive at that period. He died very young, a man named Bubber Miley. And Miley is a fascinating choice for Ellington to go with because his mentor, his his uh, you know star, is in the sky is is King Oliver, and King Oliver was famous for using mutes that even made the blues you know funkier and and more nuanced and more characterized. And uh, uh, as great as Oliver was, Bubba Miley was probably the greatest mute player of his time. And those mutes became the voices of the Ellington Orchestra. For a while, it was known as the Jungle Band because there were so many muted players on trombone and, and trumpet. And uh, he really developed his style. And from that point on, Ellington is, you know, the ultimate blues orchestra. Again, he wrote dozens and dozens of blues that are straightforward 12, 16 bar blues. But he also uh, brought the blues feeling to, to virtually everything that he did. So uh, I, I, if, you, if, you, if you misread the father of the blues as an epithet and, and say that he's claiming he invented the blues, which he never does, then yes, you're going to want to uh, puncture that myth. But uh, he was the father of the blues and that as a publisher, as a businessman, he was much more of a businessman in many respects than he was a composer. But I don't think you can take away if you listen to Armstrong's great recording of the 50s that he did with uh, Handy's Blessing, uh, where he plays only handy pieces. The the first thing that gets to you besides Armstrong's own genius is the, the melodic variety. I mean, these are real songs. And they're all legitimate blues, and that's Candy's great contribution. And let's let's hear from a different songwriter. This is another songwriter that that I knew some of the songs, but I wasn't particularly familiar with. This is Clarence Williams doing Spencer Williams. Everybody loves my baby. When we come back, 
I'll have you tell us about Spencer Williams. Everybody wants my baby, but my baby don't want nobody but me. That's plain see. He's got those Elgin movements, 20 years guaranteed. There's no need for improvement, my sweet daddy's built for speed. That's why everybody loves my baby, but my baby don't love nobody but me. And that was Clarence Williams' recording of Spencer Williams' Everybody Loves My Baby. And Spencer Williams is just one of many overlooked African-American songwriters of the 20s that, that you shout out. Um, you know, there's, there's so many tunes that we remember the tune or the title, and we don't remember the author. And with Spencer, you've got things like Ain't Nobody's Business, Basin Street Blues, I Ain't Got Nobody, I Found a New Baby, uh, Careless Love that he co-wrote with W.C. Handy. Tell us a little bit about Spencer Williams and why do you think his songs have outlived his personal reputation? Well, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to be so obvious, but this race is, is almost always the issue here. You know, uh, Dave Jason, who died uh, a few months ago, wrote some wonderful books about uh, American music in the early parts of the century, did a, a, a volume on black uh, songwriters. And you look down the list and you can't believe how many of the songs that everybody knows, even now from that era, are by black composers like Sweet Georgia Brown. And uh, uh, Dark Town Strutter's Balls, Shelton Brooks, uh, Maceo, uh, uh, what's his name? Pink Heart, I'm, I'm blanking. Um, but so many of these uh, songwriters, uh, they wrote a few songs that became huge hits and have remained hits, but nothing was done to promote them. And they didn't have the 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 entree into the, parts of show business that made songwriters famous to everyone. Uh, Jerome Kern, if he had only written songs that a couple of singers like, uh, you know, Marion Harris or Sophie Tucker would perform, it would not be as famous as he is. He's famous because he had entree to Broadway and he wrote all these legendary shows, Showboat being the most celebrated, Gershwin, Berlin, all of them had entree to the theater, to the cinema, Nobody was calling up Spencer Williams. He, he would write black shows. He was very successful with that. And he went to France and then he went to Europe and he toured with them and he was successful there. But, you know, if uh, somebody had a libretto like, uh, I don't know, Showboat or Oklahoma or Pal Joey or you name it, uh, they weren't going to black songwriters. They might be going to black arrangers. That often happened, but they were backstage and nobody knew out front how integrated the backstage was. Uh, And so a lot of these songwriters, even Fats Waller, who's certainly on the A-list of great American songwriters, uh, who had many, many hits. Uh, was hugely famous for his uh, hundreds of Victor recordings, many of them with a comical bent, uh, maybe most of them. Uh, but, uh, you know, he wrote Hot Chocolate Score, which made Louis Armstrong a star, but that was off-Broadway for the most part. And then when it came to Broadway, it was a review. Nobody was coming to Fats Waller or the great 
James B. Johnson, another one of the great A-list songwriters and composers in American music, and asking them to uh, write scores for, uh, you know, top dollar Broadway productions um, because they were white shows. The, the Broadway was not integrated, even when there was uh, there was a black Broadway, even there were, when there were major shows like U.B. Blake's and Noble Sissel's uh, Shuffle Along. Uh, it was a black production, but integrated in terms of black stars and white stars. It was it wasn't uh, any more common than you would see in, in movies. It just didn't exist. Uh, but backstage was another story. You know, when Ellington was at the Cotton Club, he was working backstage with white uh, uh, choreographers and arrangers. And Harold Arlen was part of the staff there. And uh, but nobody out front knew that the, the out front, the audience was entirely white and the stage was entirely black. Uh, or brown or beige because there was the famous uh, brown bag test for dancers at the Cotton Club. If they were darker than a brown paper shopping bag, they couldn't work there. I mean, the whole color thing, you know, Stan, my friend Stanley Crouch wrote a wonderful book called The All-American Skin Game. It's just, you know, endlessly, <laughs> you know, we don't live in that different a world that it's completely shocking to us. I'm sorry to say, but it is, it is a shock. It is an astonishment to think of, of, of the degree to which skin color has completely freaked out uh, this society for most of its history. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things. There's a expression that, you know, if you're in prison, everything you have, everything you do has to be, easily interpreted by the stupidest person in the room because that person might, you know, try to shank you with their knife. So you have to, uh -huh. you have to keep your messaging simple. And it really is with American culture. It's nothing. It's the stupidest possible reason. Some people look different from others and it's easy to spot those differences. So, you know, it, it drags us down to the level of the dumbest, most racist person in our society constantly and we can't seem to, to pull out of there. The one last point I want to ask you about is, is that you point out that W.C. Handy really kind of lived the story that Al Jolson tells in The Jazz Singer of a, a, a Jewish kid who's raised, father's a cantor and raised to sing in the temple, but wants to sing popular songs and ragtime and jazz. W.C. Handy actually lived that also talk about the split between blues and pop singers in the black community and spiritual singers and and why was there so much tension between those two art related art forms well you know the 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 sort of crucial figure in terms of uh rolling over that uh divide was ray charles and uh one of the people who attacked him early in his career was the great blues singer bill Big Bill Bruzy, who's, you know, felt that there was something terribly, uh, uh, you know, suspect about taking church music, gospel music, and making it secular. I, I can't remember who said it, but it was a famous line that uh, uh, the only difference between church music and Ray Charles is that where the the gospel choir sings Jesus, Ray Charles sings Baby, and. Uh, uh, that remained for a long time. Uh, recently, I saw my great, uh, one of the great saxophone players of our time and a good friend uh, whose career I've covered since he was 20 years old, 
David Murray was at the Village Vanguard, and he's an extraordinary artist on so many levels. And uh, David, when he grew up, uh, had to keep his uh, musical ambition secret because his parents uh, did not want him playing secular music, jazz. They thought it was, uh, you know, anti-religious, and uh, he had to sort of keep uh, all of that undercover. Uh, while he was developing, developing as a as an artist, um, Handy uh, came from a religious background, and there was a feeling among many people that church music was something that was it was sacred music, and and you didn't take it out and and sort of uh, rough it up with uh, make it into songs about sex and and violence and you know Frankie and Johnny type songs and so forth. Um, but I just want to sort of correct something. I, I'm not sure to the degree that Handy actually lived uh, the jazz singer, but uh, but in the movie, in the movie based on Handy's life, very very loosely, it is practically a remake of the jazz singer. Nat King Cole plays Handy, and uh, the whole film is uh, it's just like in the jazz singer. His father just won't accept him. He won't go to hear him. He won't listen to his concerts um, because uh, what he's doing is considered so offensive to his uh, feelings as a as a religious figure in the community. And finally, at the end, uh, when he sees his son being, you know, standing greeted with a standing ovation at Carnegie Hall, I think it is, uh, they finally uh, embrace and accept each other. So it, it it's become a kind of a uh, of a uh, defining uh, myth- mythological story in American entertainment that there's this uh, line between, uh, you know, religious traditions in, in, the, in the Jewish uh, uh, Jolson story. It's about uh, his father's a cantor and, and uh, he has this beautiful voice and they're hoping he will follow in his footsteps, but no, he wants to be with the movie calls a jazz singer. He wants to be a popular performer. And uh, uh, eventually when his father dies, he sings a Kaddish and he's accepted again, except he's not giving up. He, he stays in the, in the lane that he's chosen for himself, which is to be a, a popular performer, a stage performer. And uh, basically, that's uh, the St. Louis Blues, which is the name of the movie that uh, that they made about Handy. Uh, Nat Cole makes the the same decision. Um, there were other. This story is frequently, you know, it's part of the Benny Goodman story, which is a complete fabrication. Benny Goodman had a god awful childhood. I mean, he to the end of his days, he refused to talk about it. It was cruel and and uh, relentlessly. Uh, poverty stricken and and he escaped uh with his clarinet his clarinet gave him a key to to escape from that and he never looked back um but uh, when they make a film about him it's about uh you know how, how he's leaving the familial traditions of old and and becoming americanized in the process and that's a good point to end. My guest has been Gary Giddens. The book is Visions of Jazz, the First Century. And we've been talking about the first section of that book, The Precursors of Jazz. Gary, thanks so much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. I enjoy it. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, 
Nate and Ed Leg will be back with more discussion of Michelangelo Matos's book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. to achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.